everyone. My name is Brooke Henderson, and I am one of the first-year EMPs residents at Indiana University. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Dr. Tara Harris. Dr. Harris is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Indiana University. She specializes in child abuse pediatrics and is a member of the Child Protection Team, which serves children across the entire state of Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Harris. Thank you. So for those of us who might not know as much about child abuse pediatrics, can you tell us more about what child abuse pediatricians do? Sure. So child abuse pediatricians, um, we are a subspecialty, so it, it does require three-year fellowship and a board certification like any of the other um, pediatrics boards um, or subspecialties. And our specialty is in seeing children for suspected physical or sexual abuse and sometimes neglect. Today, we are going to be t discussing a difficult topic for most pediatricians, but lucky for us, it happens to be Dr. Harris's specialty, and that is child abuse and neglect. While this is a topic that's very important for us to know about in our daily lives as pediatricians, it also accounts for 2% of the board content and has some high-yield and often-tested material. We're going to break the topic into several sections to make the material a little easier to understand. We will start with physical abuse. What are the important things we need to know about physical abuse, Dr. Harris? Great. So I think, um, you know, as we think about physical abuse, both clinically and for in the mindset of, you know, what questions might um, be asked of us, I think it's important to um, not try to memorize all the facts, but to kind of really think about, talk about why it happens. Most physical abuse, uh, child physical abuse, doesn't happen because somebody planned that or you know planned in the morning that this is what they were going to do. Caretakers get frustrated with kids, so that's when we most often see this happen, when somebody who doesn't have good coping skills gets frustrated with kids for normal kid behaviors and takes it out on them physically. So if we keep that in mind, then I think it's easier to remember, one, that this is very common because kids are frustrating. All kids are frustrating. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people that don't have great coping skills or parenting skills to know how to deal with that. So it is very common. Um, every year, about 1% of kids in our country have a substantiated case of abuse through CPS. Of course, we know that the actual rate is far higher than that. Uh, when we talk to adults about their experiences during childhood, it's more like about one in four people experienced some kind of physical abuse during their childhood. So very, very common when we think about triggers, you know, we talked about that this is from, usually relates to frustration. So triggers for child abuse can be both you know, familial factors and then child factors. So if we talk first about familial factors, anything that increases stress in the household is going to be a risk factor for abuse. So poverty is very stressful. Having a parent lose a job is very stressful. Anything that's increasing stress in the household is going to increase risk of abuse. Um, other things like mental illness and drug use in the home, for example. And then as we look at the kids themselves, anything that's going on with them developmentally that makes them especially frustrating for caregivers is going to increase the risk of abuse. So big peaks are around crying, for example. So babies peak of crying is about six to eight weeks, and we see abusive head trauma frequency peak right after that because that crying that won't stop is so frustrating to some to, to parents, probably frustrating to all parents, but hopefully a lot of parents can cope with that well and know that they can put their baby down and walk away or they have support to help deal with that. Other things kids do that are kind of frustrating milestones include like potty training. So we see another big spike in physical abuse around that time where they're potty training because people, if they have inappropriate expectations, get frustrated with those accidents. So those are kind of common triggers. 
As far as identifying physical abuse, I think it's important to remember a couple of rules. I call them my two injury rules. So one is that pre-mobile kids shouldn't have any evidence of injury. So before they're cruising, any bruises, any abrasions, certainly any burns, you know, any evidence of trauma should be very well accounted for and easily accounted for by the parents. Those that don't cruise, don't bruise. So even if it looks like a minor injury and that it doesn't need medical intervention, it's still a big deal on a pre-mobile child. Or they're cruising, they shouldn't be bruising. Exactly, yes. Um, <laughs> then the other, um, once they are cruising, you, know, you think about how you go through the world. They, they lead with the hard surfaces, usually on the front of their body. So when they're starting to walk, it's their forehead, their knees, their shins. So any injuries that are on other parts of the body that are not hard, that they're not leading with, those should raise some red flags, should make us ask more questions. If they have bruising on the backs of their legs or bruising on their buttocks, anything like that. Other things to look for, um, like symmetric injuries. So if they have you know, burns to both hands or burns to both feet, that symmetry, that doesn't usually happen accidentally, so that would be another kind of red flag. I'm trying to think of other categories of physical injury. I think those are the, the big ones, the injuries on pre-mobile kids and then injuries on, on soft surfaces that we don't lead with. Those are big ones to be aware of. Yeah, so um, kind of looking for those risk factors of socioeconomic and other stressors in the house and kind of the age at which things can be the most frustrating mm-hmm. and then looking at the patterns of the injury, looking at specific ages as well and how that correlates to the story. Yep, yeah, exactly. So we can use the 10-4 faces mnemonic to remember abnormal bruising and unusual places for injury. The 10 is for torso, ear, and neck as abnormal places for bruising. The four is less than four months, and some abnormal places for injury with the faces being frenulum, the auricular area, cheek, eyelids, and scleral hemorrhage. Mentioned, um, of course, is that we are always mandated reporters. So if we're worried about physical abuse or child child abuse of any form, it's very important. In every state in the country, physicians are always mandated reporters. And that doesn't mean that you report if you can prove abuse, but you're required to prove to report rather if you suspect abuse. So if we're suspecting abuse, what's the best way for us to screen? What tests should we be ordering? Great question. So first, as we were just talking about, if we're suspecting abuse, then then making a report to CPS early in that process is an important step. As far as our medical evaluation, I think there's kind of two different parts. One, whatever injury it is that made you worried about abuse, you need to think about the differential for that. So whether that's bruising, you know, we want to think about other bleeding problems. If it's a fracture, we want to think about bone fragility disorders. So you want to think about the differential for whatever you're looking at. But then the other part of our evaluation is screening for additional occult injury. So if you have one injury that makes you worried for abuse, there are certain steps that you should take you know, as recommended by the AAP. So if you're worried about physical abuse in a child who's less than two years old, you should order a skeletal survey on that child. Um, if you're worried about abuse in a child that's less than six to 12 months, you should also order a head CT. Both of those studies, when done in a child with appropriate um, indicating risk factors, will reveal additional injury in about 25% of kids. Wow. They're high-yield tests to do. A newer recommendation is in infants and young toddlers, if they have evidence of abuse or if they have an injury that you're worried about abuse, that you should also do LFTs and lipase to screen for intra-abdominal injury. That is newer research, so there's not a clear age cutoff. I usually use about two years old for that. 
So next we're going to talk about sexual abuse, and this is certainly a very difficult topic for most physicians to deal with. What's your approach to it, and what are the things we're expected to know about sexual abuse? So sexual abuse certainly is a topic that's very emotional for a lot of people. I think it's important to remember that most children that have experienced this, they do get through it with appropriate support and response. Yeah, they, they can certainly recover from this. It's also very common, unfortunately, like physical abuse. So about one in four girls will experience sexual abuse before they turn 18 and about one in six boys. So lots and lots of kids have these experiences. So one of the things that we can do that's important um, is to let kids know that they're not alone. It's not the, they're not the only child this has happened to. Um, and most get through and have happy, productive lives. So we shouldn't think of it as you know this life-ending uh, occurrence. But but certainly we need to respond to it appropriately. Make sure that they are both physically and emotionally healthy after this experience. So physically, you know, we want to um, do an exam. Make sure that there's not pregnancy or STIs or other complications. But in the vast majority of cases, we're not going to find that. So more than 95% of children who've been sexually abused will have completely normal exams. So just remember, it's normal to be normal. Um, so one of the things that we, you know, one of our mantras is it's normal to be normal. Uh, even if we know there's been penetration, no matter what's happened, most kids are going to have completely normal exams. On the other hand, the, the emotional piece can obviously be a lot harder. Most children will have some need for counseling or therapy, so making appropriate referrals is really important. It's not something that the, the general pediatrician can manage just through our short office visits. We need to make sure that they get connected with resources for ongoing therapy after we clear them, make sure that they're physically okay. Absolutely. So recognizing it's a common thing, reassuring children that they're not alone, and getting them plugged in with the appropriate resources. Another type of abuse that might be more difficult for us to detect sometimes is psychological abuse. How can we best approach this subject? Um, this is a really difficult subject to approach and difficult to pick up on. A lot of the symptoms are going to look like symptoms of other issues too. So if we see kids or teenagers who are withdrawing from family and other social activities, if they're having behavioral changes, you know, they used to be a good student and now they're having troubles in school, Certainly, if they're doing any self-harming and cutting, those should all be red flags for us about what's going on at home. As I mentioned, obviously, that can be a lot of different things going on at home, so it can be really hard to pinpoint. So it's one of those times where we have to be very aware of our limited role and reaching out to other partners, reaching out to their schools and their counselors, and making sure we tie in other people to, to address those issues for the child. So another area we need to know about is neglect. What are the different types of neglect, and how can we work it up if we're suspicious of neglect? I think when we approach neglect, it's important to, to approach the specific type of neglect because our response is going to be different depending on what's going on. So there's a few different categories of neglect. One that comes up for us as medical professionals a lot is medical neglect. So kids who have chronic conditions, if their caretakers are not bringing them to appointments as they need or not giving medications that are prescribed, that would be medical neglect. One of the things we have to look at there is is that neglect causing harm to the child? If it's causing harm to the child or potentially causing harm to the child, um, then we need to make a report at that point. Uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot about um, is vaccines. If parents are refusing vaccines, does that qualify as neglect? Um, while all of us would endorse um, <laughs> vaccination, in most places it's not required. So unless you can show that this particular child has suffered an ill consequence because of that, then in most places they're not gonna take that as a report for neglect. On the other hand, uh, your child with 
with asthma, who's been mul admitted multiple times um, with significant exacerbations, and you have reason to believe mom's not filling the controller medication or not giving it, that's clear medical neglect. You know, she's not following medical advice. It's having demonstrable um, or demonstrable consequences for that child. So that, that would be medical neglect. Other types of neglect include um, supervisional neglect. So if you have, especially we see this with toddlers and younger kids who are presenting repeatedly for what are accidental sounding injuries, but presenting over and over where you think parents are not supervising closely enough. That would be an example of supervisional neglect. Physical neglect is where the family is physically not meeting the needs of the child. So for example, children in winter that don't have an appropriate coat or appropriate warm clothing, that's a form of physical neglect. In younger babies, certainly we see this with like failure to thrive, where they're just not providing adequate nutrition for that child. That would be physical neglect. And then finally, educational neglect. So as kids get older, they should be in school. So if they're not being made to go to school, then that would be educational neglect, including if families are putting too much responsibility on the child too soon. So they're expecting the first grader to get himself up and ready for the bus and not providing support. You know, that's educational neglect, too, because they're not fulfilling their role in making sure that the child gets to school. So depending on which type of neglect it is, obviously that's going to uh, tailor your response to that. Excellent. Thanks for those examples. I know there's so much more we could talk about when it comes to child abuse. What are a couple more things that would be really high yield or that we could be tested on for boards? One of the other categories of child abuse is medical child abuse. So I think that's another important one to touch on, at least briefly. Medical child abuse is the term that we use now that incorporates um, Munchausen by proxy and other similar conditions. So the reason that we, we usually use that language now, the medical child abuse, or you'll also see it called um, caregiver fabricated illness, is because it puts the focus on on the fact that the caregiver is causing this illness or, or fabricating these symptoms. Munchausen by proxy is one type of medical child abuse, but Munchausen by proxy is a specific psychiatric diagnosis where that caregiver is getting you know, emotional reward from what's going on. We also see this type of phenomenon, for example, a parent who is saying their child's having a lot of pain, so they get pain prescriptions and then they sell the medications on the street. That's still medical child abuse. Obviously, it's still inappropriate. They're using the medical system to harm their child, or their use of the medical system is causing right. harm to their child, but it's not Munchausen by proxy. So that's why we use that bigger umbrella term now, medical child abuse. Indicate any time the caregiver is using the medical system in a way that's harming the child. Uh, Munchausen by proxy is something that we talk about quite a bit because it is an interesting diagnosis. Thankfully, we don't see it all that often. But when it happens, it can certainly be very devastating for the child. So things that you want to watch for are things like a parent who presents repeatedly for a symptom that's never witnessed by medical providers. So, for example, the child who has multiple admissions for vomiting and diarrhea, but when they're in the hospital, there's no witnessed vomiting and no diarrhea. Or children where the caretakers are requesting increasingly escalated types of testing. So they want a PICC line and then they want a central line. They want a G-tube. You know, they're requesting these studies and escalating those. That would um, clearly be another example of medical child abuse. Awesome. Thanks for that.